Just a few moments, I'd like for us to uh, put our attention on Psalm 139. It's uh, page 521 in these Bibles in the pews. If you would turn there, please. have, uh, as Stephen mentioned, why, why is it that Christians uh, through the ages have opposed not only the killing of infants and infanticide, but also abortion? And why have uh, Christians started hospitals to care for the defenseless, for the disabled, and the elderly? And why are so many crisis pregnancy centers and adoption agencies started by Christians? Uh, just from a historical standpoint, uh, the Christian church has always and everywhere opposed abortion. It was the early church, distinguished itself from in the Roman world in its opposition to the then widespread legal practice of infanticide as well as abortion. Uh, documents from, the, from as early as the 2nd century uh, strictly forbid abortion, saying you shall not destroy thy conceptions before they are brought forth. You shall not slay a child by abortion. Jews of both uh, what was called the Alexandrian and the Palestinian schools condemned abortion as contrary to the law of God. Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin strongly opposed it. Calvin called it an abomination to kill a fetus in the womb who has not yet been brought into the light. And the Presbyterian Church in 1869 declared we regard the destruction by parents of their offspring before birth with abhorrence as a crime against God and against nature. Then you move on to more modern scholars like Karl Barth who said, he who destroys germinating life kills a man. Diedrich Bonhoeffer called the destruction of developing life murder. George Williams, professor of church history at Harvard Divinity School, summarizes the Christian church's historic position in saying 2,000 years of Jewish Christian history maintained that the fetus is a person with a right to life. It's only really it's been in the last 40, 45 years that this position has begun to be challenged by those who profess to be Christians by, by the church. And, and some of you may have come from church backgrounds where, depending on the particular church, may have said that that is a very, um, uh, is a viable option to have an abortion. So why is it then that Christians, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority, have opposed such? Uh, that question can be answered in, in many ways, but, but certainly one of them, one of those answers is in this passage, Psalm 139. There, there's probably no passage of Scripture that's read and studied more in this relationship than Psalm 139 because it answers many questions but four very important ones. Does God know me? Is God close to me? Did God make me? And does God protect me? Um, so let's just uh, let's look very briefly. Uh, when I say briefly, I mean we'll spend a few minutes but we won't go really in depth. I want to just kind of hit some of the highlights of this and start with the first four verses. Uh, it's a Psalm of David. Uh, these psalms typically were used in corporate worship. So this one is addressed to the choir master, a psalm of David. 
And he begins with, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it together. So, so these verses tell us several things, but primarily that God knows everything. He knows everything about you. And, and the big word used for that is omniscient. God is omniscient. Two words that are brought together. Omni, meaning all, and science that has to do with knowledge. So it means all knowledge, all knowingness. He has all knowledge. There's absolutely nothing God does not know. Think about how, what a contrast that is with you and me, how every day we are faced with the reality of how little we know. Our knowledge is partial. Your knowledge is limited, and you and I are completely dependent, by and large, on the knowledge of others. Think about every time you take a prescription medicine, you are acting on the knowledge of several people, from a pharmacist to a lab technician to the person who packaged and put the label on. When you travel, if you fly on an airplane, you're dependent not only on the pilot's knowledge, but the mechanic and the person who's scheduled and the air traffic controller. And we're always, everything we do, we are dependent. We are dependent on the knowledge of others, knowledge that we do not have. And so we need each other because our individual knowledge is so uh, fragmented and so partial and so limited, but God needs no one. We call this the solitariness of God, that God is solitary and he is... Uh, all God in and of himself. He needs no one because he cannot gain any knowledge. That's one reason. He cannot gain any knowledge from anyone else. He knows everything about everything. And that's what David, as he thinks about himself, is saying, Lord, you, you know everything. And he says in verse 1 that God has searched him. It's the idea of digging through something. God explores. He digs into you. He examines you through and through. And David pictures two phases of life, just the simplicity of sitting down and rising up. That's our most common ways to describe our, our casual moments uh, of sitting down and rising up. Those are completely familiar to the Lord. In verse 2, he says that God perceives our thoughts. We can only guess what another person is thinking or feeling. Often, we don't even know what we're thinking or feeling or why. Uh, but we can, cannot see what happens when another person between their thoughts and their words. But God does. God knows your thoughts before you think them. Even your thoughts are an open book to him. He knows right now. He knows right now your very thoughts. And he knew what they were 10 minutes ago and 10 years ago. And he knows what they will be in the future. Your thoughts can be frustration, cheerfulness, belligerent, angry, disappointed, content, patient. Your emotions, he, he knows it all. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be misunderstood. If someone comes up and says, what's wrong? Well, nothing's wrong. Well, you look angry. I'm not angry. I just look this way. <laughs> yeah, it's like... I don't. Or if you try to guess what someone, or say that to another person, they say, no, you, you've misread. You, mis, you misunderstood what I was saying or what I was thinking. Uh, God never misunderstands us. 
because he knows our thoughts. Um, Verse 3 says, you search out. You search out my path and my lying down. The, The literal term is to sift. You sift. It's the idea of sifting and, sub, and scrutinizing something. Years ago, I mentioned that, uh, I have to be hesitant with this, uh, I, my father was an only child, and I have one sister, so that set of grandparents had two grandkids, me and my sister. And uh, my grandfather was born in poverty in a West Georgia town, He was a very smart man who never had more than an eighth grade education. He worked as a pipe shop uh, in those days, in the the 19, the teens and 20s and 30s. It was hard work, and he was a foreman, and he had to carry a pistol with him, and he had brass knuckles in his pocket, and it was a rough world. He did not allow my father to see where he worked until he was 14 years old. He did not want my father to have anything to do with that, so he and my grandmother saved up money and sent my dad to law school. They did not want him to do the kind of work that he had grown up in. But my grandfather was a very rough, J.D. Miller was his name, and he was a very, very rough man. Not toward us, but he just lived a rough life. He had huge hands. He was a real stocky man. And when I was a child, my sister and I were children, he took a 1950-something pickup truck down to the Florida coast and loaded the the, the, the bed up with sand, white Florida sand, and brought it to Montgomery, Alabama, and filled up the sandbox that he built for us with white sand. That's pretty nice, isn't it? Well, <laughs> what we would do, like any kid with a sandbox, you sift. You get those plastic or metal sifters, and we'd get out there and say, oh, what's this? Is it gold? Oh, no, it's an acorn. <laughs> no, it's just Is this a diamond? Oh, it's a rock. And so you sift and you have fun. We'd spend hours and hours and hours in this white sand uh, that came from Florida. I'm sure there's some kind of federal legislation. Literally, from my study, this is saying God takes you. God takes you and me, and he's sifting He's sifting through us, and look at what it says. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. God knows everything about you. He knows your words before you speak them. He he knows your thoughts before you think them. How well does God know you? He could not know you any better. It's exhaustive. He knows everything about you. Verse 4, he knows your words before you speak them. Not everyone likes the idea of being intimately known. If we think about this, it can be threatening. You mean God knows everything? Yes, everything. Everything bad I've done, every thought, he knows everything. And most of us, we prefer to keep a lot of things from everybody else's view. And so that can seem scary, but David revels in this thought. As he ponders all this, he he says in verse verse 6, it's too wonderful. Such knowledge is too wonderful, it's too high. I cannot attain to it. So this is not threatening to David as he thinks about how well God knows him and it should not be to you either. So how does the fact that God knows you with such 
thoroughness? How does it make you feel? Does it elicit fear or anger or worry? Well, for David, he just says it's too wonderful. It's like he doesn't even have the words or the vocabulary to express, to express it. Charles Spurgeon said, We are not surprised that the most glorious God should in his knowledge be high and above all the knowledge to which we can attain. It must of necessity be so since we are such poor limited beings. And when we stand a tiptoe, we cannot reach to the lowest step of the throne of the eternal. So these opening verses tell, tell us that God knows you. He knows you like no one else. Then, beginning in verse 7, he, he talks about how God is near to us. Where can I go from your spirit? Can, can you find a place that will remove you from God? The answer is an emphatic no. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. For my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The, the way this reads, so I'm told in the original language, is like this. It just uses a pronoun for God. It says, if I go up to the heaven, thou. Like, God is there. If I go down to the grave or the place of the dead, thou. In other words, you are. You are there. God is present there as well. You cannot escape his reach. Wherever you go, his right hand will hold you fast. So before you, behind you, above you, beneath you, God is there. God is never absent. Look at verses 11 and 12. It's considering this idea of can I get away from him? If it, surely the darkness will over, over... If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. God is never absent. Even darkness does not affect God's pervading presence. We may think, well, if I just do this and nobody sees, or if I do this under cover of darkness, it will go unnoticed. But it doesn't. It doesn't. God sees it. No one else may see it. Because even the darkness is not dark to the Lord. Darkness shields our view, but it doesn't shield God's view. I saw an app the other day for the iPhone. Maybe some of you own it. Be a nice thing to give your pastor next Christmas. It's a heat-seeking camera that goes on your iPhone, and you can you can see into the dark. You know, I guess guess if a kid was lost in the church, I could use it. There's a reason to get it. Our military has devices to aid sight in darkness, thermal imagers, active infrared technology, passive night vision goggles. When I read the book, No Easy Day, I remember that Navy SEAL saying the most important piece of equipment they had were their night vision goggles, $65,000 for a set. You cannot escape God's presence if you try to hide from him because of sin, he is there. So how does God know you so intimately? Why is he so near to you? Because now we see because he made you. Verses 13 and following talk about this, how carefully he has made he has made you. For you form my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. It emphasizes that it's God, you, verse 13, you form my inward parts. That's what he's emphasizing. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
was not by accident. It was not without a plan. It's God alone. When it says he knit you together, it's, it's a, he's involved in all the placing of all the organs and the various parts of our body together. On the 21st day after you were conceived, the foundation had been created for your brain, your spinal cord, your entire nervous system. Your heart began to beat on the 21st day after conception. After just one month, your internal skeleton was being begun to form. Your nose, your eyes, your ears, within five weeks of conception, your eyes, nostrils, ears, mouth, lips, and tongue were visible, and teeth had begun to form. All your muscle blocks were present, and movement had begun. By the sixth week, your adrenal gland and thyroid were functioning. Your fingerprints were in place by the eighth week after conception. Those will last a lifetime. At three months, all your organ systems were present and functioning, and this is what you look like. Nothing more is to be formed after that amount of time, after three months. You slept, you woke up, you tasted, you heard, you heard sounds, you just continued to grow until birth. During the fourth month of your life, you were six inches long, and you began to suck your thumb. Your mom began to feel you move, and over those fifth and sixth months, you grew to be about 12 inches long. Often you would sleep when your mother was her busiest, and loud sounds outside the womb would trigger a strong reaction. During the last three months of your mother's pregnancy, you grew to about 20 inches and probably weighed about seven and a half pounds. Now we, moderns, know about the technical specifics of fetal development. And the psalmist did not know all of that. But he knew who was controlling the process. He knew that. And so he burst forth in praise in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Isn't it true? You watch nature programs. I, I like nature programs. I like to watch about penguins or polar bears or certain birds in Africa or Asia or things like that. And often you're amazed at things they'll do and their migration patterns and, and so forth, things that are hidden from the human eye. But if you had a nature program about the human body, it's a species of wonder. When you think what we can do athletically, aesthetically, speech-wise, intellect, it's just profound. It's profound. And so he tells us that God is the one who did this. Look at verse 15. mentions the depth of the earth. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, being made in secret, intimately woven in the depths of the earth. That means hidden from sight. God intricately wove you. It's the same term that Moses used to describe the curtain that would be hung in the ancient temple. This pattern and the weaving it together to look a certain way, and he's saying that's what God does with us. It's his work. Now do you see, if you haven't already, why this passage is always on the table with discussions about abortion when it comes to the Bible? Because in God's eyes, you are a masterpiece of creation. When a developmental psychologist met with Barbara and myself about our son Stephen when he was when we were beginning as when he was just a few months old to find out about the severity of his disabilities 
I remember she said, she said, uh, she drew simply for us laymen on a sheet of paper how the brain develops. And she said it really spins out from the inside. It's almost like a cotton candy machine, she said, and, and it grows out. And she looked at us. I have no idea if this woman professed to believe in anything as far as God. And she said, it's really a miracle any of us are normal. It is a miracle, but it's not a happenstance miracle. It's God's work. Our response to this should be reverence. Reverence. We ought to bow in reverence before God and worship him because we each, each individual, is a brilliant part of his handiwork. But also confidence. We can trust God because he's the one who made you. He knows you better than you know yourself, far better than anyone else knows you. And, so it's, and also, instead of complaining about how you look or who you are or what you think you lack or the talents you didn't get or the height or the color or whatever, color eyes, gracefully and gratefully accept what God has done and praise him. Your eye color, your height, your skin color, your abilities, your artistic ability, that is not there by accident. And then verses 19 to 24 comes to a hard part of the passage. It seems not to fit at first. Note how he goes from these thoughts of wonder to this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. The tone changes from gratitude to judgment. And the writer appeals to God to intervene and to remove his enemies. The character of those enemies is noted as being bloodthirsty and malicious and blasphemous in speech. You know what this shows? It shows that knowing God brings an awareness of evil. It brings an awareness of evil around us and within us. And not everyone delights in the knowledge of God. Some oppose him and his gracious purposes. So the cry for vengeance here by David is not out of personal vengeance. These are God's enemies. And so knowing God brings opportunity for change. And that brings us to the last couple of verses. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So as we come to know him, we ask the Lord to continue his work of sifting through our hearts and motivations and desires. So I don't know everyone here, but you may not know God, but he knows everything about you. Do you live day to day with the awareness that this God who intricately formed you and intimately knows you and who is closer to you than you can ever realize, do you know he desires a relationship with you through Jesus Christ? That as we recognize that we each have sinful hearts, all of us have, that have broken God's laws, that continue to do so, that God fulfilled his promise of sending a Redeemer who would make all things right, and that as we come to trust in him and believe that he died in my place, then I can come to know peace about this. He gave a promise in Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So you can't fool God. You can't flee from him. The only thing you can do is, is surrender to him, is to trust him and to worship him in reverence and in awe. But believe the Lord Jesus Christ paid for your sins. Ask him to make you the person he wants you to be. And he will give you the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we only have partial knowledge of how full your knowledge is of us. But if this is true and we believe it is, then we were not, when we were born was not an accident. How we look was not an accident. The talents and experiences and things we've been through have been under your control and under your sovereign hand. We pray that we, as we ponder this, even as David did um, 3,500 years ago, that you would give us trust and, and delight in it. We thank you that someone saw fit to protect our lives even when we were helpless in the womb. We pray that you might, by your mercy, cause an awakening to that value to be reestablished here and elsewhere in the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at your order of service, you see the words of the doxology there at the end. Let me uh, ask you, if you will, to stand, and we'll be dismissed with the benediction, and then we'll sing together the doxology. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.